listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Hamid, one of the PhD students of the program. Professional wrestling occupies a strange place in the pop culture ether, walking a line between sport and theatricality, unlike any other form of entertainment. Its appeal lies in its use of athleticism and realism to tell an entirely fictional story. Stories of good versus evil, and the just versus the corrupt, and a tradition of live performance that goes back well over a century. One that's existed in every continent on the planet, barring the Antarctic. And for nearly five decades, the spectacle that is professional wrestling has been defined by a single undisputed king. The brainchild of one Vincent Kennedy McMahon, World Wrestling Entertainment. In fact, for many, the WWE is shorthand for the entire industry of sports entertainment, as it's defined the major trends and tropes of professional wrestling since it was born, and has taken the industry from a series of localized, territorial, traveling circus shows to being a global phenomenon that intersects with nearly all forms of entertainment. The WWE is a publicly traded company that's worth billions, and has spawned its own movie studio, network, and publishing house alongside countless action figures, video games, and hours of television. And while Mr. McMahon would be the first to tell you that the WWE is just entertainment, it also happens to wear its politics on its sleeve. From the constant use of racial stereotypes through the decades, to the contemporary manifestation of anti-liberal storylines, the WWE is hardly an apolitical entity of entertainment, but a discursive system that constructs and reifies specific forms of identity as good versus evil, and the just versus the corrupt. And when one considers the personal politics of Vince McMahon, the man behind the WWE, we can't help but consider the ways in which the politics of that man translate into the product itself and seek to shape and socialize the generations that watch every week. To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined this week by Paulo Gentile. Paulo is a PhD student with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton, specializing in political theory and the politics of social media. Paulo, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, to discuss the politics of wrestling. It's going to be, I think we're going to learn a few things that maybe uh, aren't necessarily gone over too much. So exciting times. As well, because like we were just talking about this and it's worth mentioning now so people know, I've been trying to make this podcast happen for about a year just because there's so much politically going on in, in the WWE that no one talks about. Um, and so I'm really happy because Paulo and I kind of bonded when we first met over wrestling. We were at a party. I remember I was showing someone, I was showing Taylor pictures from an event I took my nephew to, and then you saw, and then that was it. And since then, Paulo's been one of my guys. So I'm really happy. I heard, I heard from thing. across the room sounds of <laughs> wrestling, and I, I somehow made my way over there. So That's all it <laughs> takes. There, but yeah. there is something about wrestling fans, right? I guess it's just because like it's so rare to find one. When you do find one, it's like, hey. And there's many people in the department who dig it, but um, few who can speak about it academically, I think. So it's really cool that we're doing this now. Yeah, for sure. But we're here to talk about the WWE, and it's interesting because we talk about it as this, you know, co- sort of coherent entity, even though it's a company, right? It's a global conglomerate, it's a multinational organization. To kind of talk about its individual politics would seem to be counterintuitive, but at the same time, when people talk about the WWE, they're really using that phrase as a shorthand for one person, which is Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Now, I think a good place to start would be, you know, who is Vince McMahon? Yeah, well, Vince McMahon, uh, he's a, a nefarious icon, it seems, especially in the wrestling world. You know, Vince McMahon is basically the WWE, right? In, in a lot of ways, every final decision that comes in terms of what content you see on TV, uh, their public position on social issues, a lot of it comes down to the final check mark that Vince McMahon gives off. You know, um, we can't talk about the WWE without also investigating who Vince McMahon is and what his political beliefs are and what he thinks is a valuable product. Yeah, the interesting thing about McMahon for me is that he's, like he is very much Vince McMahon, who's the, who's the CEO of the WWE, he's the founder of the WWE, you know, bought the original company from his father, allegedly started by his grandfather, so he's this third generation sort of person in the business of wrestling. But then there's also the person he is on television, the character, right? Because Vince McMahon is a larger-than-life figure. At least he always has been for me. He's this weird mix of, like, John Madden and, like, P.T. Barnum. 
this sort of circus conductor and the, the creative yeah. mind behind it. But yeah, like you said, like he's the buck stops with Vince McMahon. He's not just the on-screen character. He's not just the owner and CEO of this billion-dollar company. He's the major creative force. Every little aspect of the WWE product, storyline, right down to the looks of wrestlers and the, the colors they wear, it has to go through this one man. He's the filter for what we all see as consumers of the product. And as consumers of the product, you have to think, you know, what are the things that are driving his creative ideas, right? Um, a lot of the things you consume, obviously, he has certain kinds of biases that go into his decision-making process. Remember, there was one anecdote about one night when they were putting on uh, SmackDown. He saw the the script that was written by the writers and literally tore it up in front of him and replaced it with his own. One thing that we might want to think about in terms of thinking about the WWE and maybe their stance on social policy is it's a bit of an echo chamber. Right by virtue of Vince McMahon's disproportionate say on uh, on everything that comes out, it's a very interesting thing because he is a longtime supporter of the Republican Party, and we're going to kind of get into the nitty gritty of that as this goes on. But you know, he's also very much like the prototypical captain of industry in terms of the American model, like the the guy who was like the venture capitalist. He's done bodybuilding was one of the things where he came up with like IcoPro and the World Bodybuilding Federation. He's tried his hand at football several yeah, times yeah. and failed with the XFL, but he keeps trying. He tried, he, he tried again and it failed again. <laughs> but wrestling's always been kind of his backbone. And he, he's a remarkable figure in that sense, because if you go back 50, 60 years, wrestling organizations were locally based territorially based and he was the guy who said no i want to create this sort of global phenomenon create one organization you know monopoly and he bought up all these small companies and all their talent and really created this one company the wwf which became the wwe which is also shorthand for wrestling when we think of pro wrestling we think wwe yeah well you know over the years you know other companies have come and gone you know and soon to be consumed by one Vincent Kennedy McMahon, right? Look at WCW, you know, they were their biggest challenger back in the day. And whether it be because of, you know, poor management of wrestling talent, as well as uh, uh, funds, you know, obviously, um, it led to their capitulation and purchasing by Vince McMahon. And, you know, a, a lot of what we see that uh, wrestling involves is due to Vince McMahon and some of his biases. Like, look at, you were talking about like the bodybuilding aspect of Vince McMahon's passions, right? back in the day what were all the you know top guys mm -hmm. so to, to use you know wrestling parlance the their top uh wrestlers were all massive you know muscle bound big six five guys right they all even kind of china like... for even for for women too right china was like one of the prototypical vincent mcmahon kind of characters right and it all comes down to what his preferences are and that's the product you see so what can we say about the politics of Vince McMahon? What are his politics? And does that then mean the WWE reflects those politics? Yeah, I think his politics are highly influenced by uh, his history as, you know, like an entrepreneur, right? You know, you think he has a lot of preferences towards certain storylines that involve, you know, like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing, you know, um, and that is reflective of his, uh, of his product, you know, and I think that's one of the things that's, allures lured him you know this is just my own theory about it but i think that's one of the things that allured him to bodybuilding you know um and pushing characters with muscle-bound physiques you know it's like that self-mastery kind of mindset right so i think he's definitely you know he fits in well with prototypical right-wing thought and uh, the idea of like individual responsibility over everything and it reflects into the product that comes out each week I think also there has been a little bit of a change lately, slightly, you know, I think that whole stereotype of the muscle bound wrestler has gone by the wayside a lot. And I think wrestlers themselves are getting more leeway to, you know, create their own characters. But at the same time, you know, that's leeway to create their own characters within the confines of what, you know, Vince McMahon still deems acceptable. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me when it comes to that sort of discipline that you're talking about. Vincent McMahon because like he is I believe 74 he's in his mid to late 70s at this point and he's still like is a physical specimen 
know, he looks like a bit oh, of a gosh, ghoul. Yeah. Like his face is aged, but the rest of him is still very much like he's my age and jacked, or you're like you because you are jacked actually. As a, like basically, he looks like Paulo, but much older, which is phenomenal for someone of his age. But that's that's the discipline of Vince, of Vince McMahon, and I think. Like the way you tied it, it, it's correct. That sort of American ideal, right? Of the, of the big, like broad chested, almost like the Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of physique, right? Of the 80s, that perfect specimen. And Vince's eyes is what a performer should look like. But like, it, I think it goes more, it goes beyond just like sort of discursive elements and comes to very concrete ones as well. Because again, as we, as we had mentioned, Vince McMahon has a long standing tie to the Republican Party. He's long since been. Uh, Republican, you'll find that on WWE, there's a um, a strong policing of political opinion. We'll put it that way. Even over the past four years, when like you know the statement of political opinions was very much in vogue, I'd say for athletes, many people looked to athletes to see what they would think about politics and the politics of the day, and like you know so much in terms of the pop culture resistance to the presidency of Donald Trump, I think came from athletes like the athletes of the WNBA and the way in which NBA players also took on that same push with the WWE. There's a militant smackdown over that bad pun. (laughs) And like that comes down to Vince McMahon because like one thing, which is really important to note is the fact that like he's donated millions to the Republican party. His wife, Linda McMahon, who was a co-owner in the WWE was a member of Trump's cabinet too, right? The small business czar. And like, as such, like Vince has always maintained a strong connection to the Trump presidency and the Republican party. Like you, you hear stories about how like he advises Trump on economic policy and it's solely like he'll make a big deal Right. Like his recent deal with NBC, where like the streaming platform that WWE owns is now, you know, been taken up by NBC and he made a billion dollars on that deal. Well, that's the sort of thing that catches the former president's eyes. And then he'll give Vince McMahon a call and start talking to him about the economy. That's a thing on the record, which has happened a couple of times throughout the presidency. It it always manifests as well. Right. Because also Donald Trump was a WWE character for a while. Like, you know, that, that happened amazingly right before he was president where he was like this character who like didn't wrestle a match but got a stone cold stunner <laughs> yeah oh I, you know speaking of you know i think we shift interestingly to you know donald trump right a lot of the way in which he held his uh his rallies really kind of conformed to wwe promos right you know there was a lot of playing to the crowd you know and watching their reaction and letting their reaction guide how he uh, engaged in his speeches, right? And, you know, I don't think we can underscore how important the WWE and the, you know, the influence of Vix McMahon on how promos are cut um, to the way in which it influenced politics. You know, there is a huge uh, feedback loop, I guess, from WWE to politics and the way in which, you know, a public speech is given, you know, the, the way in which you can cut a promo is, you know, a very powerful way to actually also convey a political agenda. Right. And I think, you know, that ability to play to the crowd um, has to be at least in part given credit to, you know, some of the ideas that have come out of WWE. Yeah. So much is based in wrestling, like the success of it is based on charisma. And, you know, we're, we're using a bit of the lingo here in terms of cutting a promo is when you're basically, well, you know, going on a rant or giving an interview, you're playing up to the crowd like a single man performance. And ultimately, like that is, as Paula said, one of Trump's rallying speeches. And you can look at Trump, the sort of big, in Scotland, they call it the big man or the hard man, right? That character. That's Vince McMahon, right? The boisterous, egotistical, I'm a billionaire and I made it myself, even though I come from old money. Like that's the Mr. McMahon character. And Trump very much played that character throughout his presidency, that he was the big man, the hard man. The buck stopped with him. He would do it all himself. And that, that just plays into more, you know, like tropes about, you know, the American ideal, as I brought up earlier, right? That, uh, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing, you know, that, you know, was out of, uh, you know, the early 50s, right? That uh, the American dream kind of mentality, you know, I think it still plays strong with a lot of, you know, maybe a more right wing base, right? And, you know, one of the best ways in which to, you know, tell tell the entire world that you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps is by cutting a WWE style <laughs> promo as a political uh, speech, you know? And it was such a it was such a groundbreaking kind of thing, you know? Um, a lot of the ways in which politics was done prior was very conventional, you know, prompter kind of speeches. And then, 
you know, just like Donald Trump comes on the scene and just breaks the mold. Right. And I think, you know, we have to be aware that, you know, the politics of WWE also lends itself to a populist kind of political actor, you know, and that has its benefits and negatives, too. How do you think politics is manifested in WWE and over time? Like, what are some examples in your mind that stick? Yeah. Out? One of the ones that sticks out of my mind the most was the day after the um, successful operation against Osama bin Laden. Right. And then John Cena comes out in the middle of an entire crowd. And it was so now that I think back on it, it, it reminds me a lot of um, during the Trump presidency with the uh, assassination of uh, Soleimani. Mm-hmm. And how they played to the crowd. So basically, John Cena comes out into the middle of the ring, uh, starts talking to the crowd, and slowly brings up the topic that they assassinated Osama bin Laden to a live audience and at a wrestling show. To a live is- to a live audience, <laughs> and it was it was almost surreal watching it. You know, through today's lens, you know, seeing Donald Trump's uh, rallies around Soleimani, and yeah, he goes out, and then everybody starts like singing like the American national anthem. You know, I, I wonder if Donald Trump saw that video and thought, you know, this is this might be a way to harness politics in the future. And then there's another example being, you know, after the Twin Towers mm-hmm. in 2001, right, obviously, you know, and the show must go on with Vince McMahon, you know, and that was one of, I think, one of the most important moments for the WWE in terms of their relationship to politics, right? You know, that they were, you know, the world stopped in many ways after 9-11, except the WWE. And they were able to convey a message of, you know, unity and strength in the face of um, such a horrible attack, right? Yeah, Vince McMahon, I, I remember that vividly, that like he had every wrestler out on the stage and he was in the yeah. ring giving this big speech about how we're not going to get beaten, that we will yeah. go on. And like the show must go on thing that Pablo mentioned, like this is a common trope with the WWE, like nothing stops the show. There's been situations where wrestlers have died during the live show. The show will continue on. COVID. From the very beginning, I think there was a week where they stopped doing television and then they were right back to live television because for Vince McMahon, the show always must go on. It makes me wonder if they feel if Vince McMahon almost feels like a I don't want to give him too much credit, but maybe there's like a responsibility, you know, that he feels to like the American people. So, quote unquote, you know, to, you know, convey a certain message to, you know, continue to give entertainment even during the darkest of times. Right. COVID, obviously has been a pretty dark time for for us all right and you know maybe there's a sense of responsibility that which could be a good thing um you know to at least you know play a role in people's lives to continue to uh take them away from their daily struggles if only it for an hour or two yeah but it's interesting though though like on that topic of patriotism you mentioned before like that's kind of like for me, because I'm older than you. <laughs> I've been watching since the 80s. You know, my older brother got me into it. Like, I think that's the general way it goes. If you have an older brother or cousin or friend, they're just at some point, maybe when you're around five years old, they're like, you need to watch this. And every boy ends up watching it. And so, you know, even going back to then, like the default setting in many ways for a good guy versus a bad guy was jingoism, right? Can you rally around the flag, right? The evil foreigners, this trope which we see time and time and time again, even to this day, I'd say. Yeah. You know, uh, an example that came to my mind last year, and it was very vivid to me, like almost beating me over the head, was there's a tag team of two incredibly talented women, Asuka and Kyrie Sane. Potentially, like, two of the top female wrestlers on the planet. Arguably, two of the top wrestlers on the planet, I'd say, in terms of their skill, particularly Asuka. Like, the art of wrestling is to make it look like it hurts, but not to even have your opponent feel it. Asuka is one of those people who's mastered the art. But, you know, they don't know what to do with Asuka, so they find the other Japanese superstar. They put them in a team together, and they're called the Kabuki Warriors. And then they come to the ring dressed as geishas, and that and they become bad guys and it's that's it's the standard sort of trope that you see with the WWE that like if you can make him chant USA he'll be a good guy and if you want to make them a bad guy you make them play up a, a foreigner angle and I, I guess maybe some in some ways it's a reflection of broader political culture you know in the United States some a lot of the underlying 
issues that still exist. Oh, right? yeah. You know, it always just tapping right. into that under that underlying um, bias that we have towards certain uh, races, sexes, whatnot. And it always reflects the political situation. I mean, in the late 70s, you have the Iron Sheik, right, who was the Iranian and he was the bad guy. They put the belt on him because they knew when he would lose the belt, people would lose their minds. That's how they built up Hulk Hogan. In the 90s, during the war with Iraq, right, there was uh, Sergeant Slaughter, the a G.I. Joe character, became an Iraqi yeah. sympathizer. Yeah. <laughs> and so Hulk Hogan, again, had to go stop him for the good or U.S. Yeah. of A, right? The yeah. late 90s, you know, you had the Canada versus U.S. angle. That was like my favorite story ever, where my favorite wrestler ever, Bret Hart, decided to say, no, Canada's the best country on Earth. <laughs> and he instantly became a bad guy for it. It, it's just time and time and time again that we see like patriotism. It's very much at the heart of, of, of wrestling. And I think it, it like it plays into it as well today, you know, like classism, for example, even to this day, you want to make a bad guy of some, you put him in a suit, right? You have someone yeah. call him an intellectual. Yeah. You have him cut a promo with big verbose words that people won't immediately understand. That's how you build someone to, that's how you build heat is what they call it in wrestling, which is yeah. like you get a reaction from the crowd that's very negative, but it's the negativity you want because he's a bad guy. So it's it's very easy to build heat by using classism as well as like, you know, the, the evil foreigner sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And just to build off of your um, your Hulk Hogan statement, his intro music just <laughs> says it on its own, right? He comes out, it's um, I'm a, it starts off with I'm a real American. Right. And, you know, he's coming out to beat like, you know, the quote unquote foreign adversary in in front of an American audience coming out to I'm a real American, you know, so it's just, yeah, it definitely plays into um, into that those underlying themes that animates overall uh, political culture in the United States, as well as the in North America, too, because obviously it has a huge presence in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, you know, even recently, you know, with uh, Ginger Mahal, even when it, with his uh, good guy. Uh, angle he was saying you know being like a shaman right just like typical tropes of you know what we would think in terms of certain cultures you know rather than just being you know another wrestler who is extremely skilled and he's massive too and it's from canada like it's it's very much worth mentioning he's He's from from calgary alberta but his character is that of like well now it's the indian shaman sort of thing like indian as in india before that it was like someone at the a jut on the height of the caste system where like everyone else was filthy and dirty and like he was unstoppable. But I'm really interested in the way that like over the past few years, like I very much see, and this just, I might be out to on the woods on this one, but like the way in which the sort of rhetoric of populism really starting to play into it. And like, there are like three sort of things that stand out to me. First is the nostalgia, right? Cause like the WWE, has the greatest collection of wrestlers and physical storytellers on the planet, but they are constantly going to the past. You know, the biggest events of the year, they call in help of from characters and wrestlers of yesteryear always, you know, and they'll always do that at the expense of the new talent because of the power of nostalgia that like people like myself and Paulo grew up watching this. It's always like, Oh him. And it, it takes you back to that moment of simpler times. Right. And like, you know, there's a parallel there to the sort of, you know, the politics of, of nationalism and white nationalism in particular, it's, you know, always going back to sort of easier time, uh, you know, an idealistic past, which may not have ever really existed. And there's also, again, like the sort of anti-intellectualism I see being there as well. And this is also tied to the next point, which would be anti-environmentalism. You know, and this has to do with particularly one wrestler who I love and I'm certain Paulo loves too, because he's arguably one of the greatest to ever do, which is a guy by the name of Daniel Bryan, who is an open and outright environmentalist. He's the sort of guy who went to school to learn sustainable farming when he thought he'd retire. That's what he wanted to dedicate his life to, but he came back and decided to play a heel character, and they made him an angry environmentalist who wanted to save the planet, but that made him a bad guy because he would rail against capitalism and then yeah. guys would come out and call him like an intellectual and a leftist and all this stuff. And it, it the fact that they were framing someone as being nefarious for having a pro-environmental opinion, I thought was hilarious. Oh, it, abs- <laughs> it absolutely was hilarious. You know, and I think he came out uh, 
the the picture on top of the screen when he walks out was like a big planet of picture of the <laughs> earth right and it was just so it was just so you know honestly it was biased right yeah right. you know like they they made him to seem like a totally self-absorbed only into the environment because of his own self-gain because it makes him look virtuous right it plays into a lot of these tropes that are ascribed to people who are very conscious of, of the environment oh you're just doing it because you know it gives you social cachet or something right and um I, in terms of the nationalism i think that is a really big big one that you're talking about because they it follows a similar kind of thing that we see in the united states or across any country that goes towards right-wing populism and it's that re-emphasis of a mythologized past right in the case of WWE, you know, I'm I'm biased. I'll be honest. I, I really enjoyed, you know, the the past, and I, I always love seeing it when, you know, my favorite old wrestler comes back. But you know, to a certain degree, you also have to think about the future too, right? And you know, they 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 keep bringing back all these, you know, old figures and not uh, giving any time to the new ones, right? So then people in the future won't have, uh, you know, that past to look forward to when, once. Uh, time keeps going on right so i think one of the big links between wwe and politics is the constant emphasis on the glory of the past and you know one thing because i study race myself in canada and abroad and, and race also plays into this stuff a lot and we see sort of racialized tropes constantly come up yeah uh i think it, it, one of the ways that wwe uses race is just the way that people look different and then you know they turn them into being the villains, right? And also, first of all, um, most of the champions that have been in the WWE have been typically, you know, muscle-bound white guys, right? Building off of those, that that stereotype. Uh, I think one of the big, you know, moments that everybody applauded was when Kofi Kingston, after, what, I think like 10, 15 years in the company, not really ever holding a title on his own, actually won, you know, and, you know, maybe that indicated a little bit of progress in, in that regard, but still a lot of uh, those tropes still exist uh, today. Mm -hmm. The thing with the WWE, and I think it's another one of those things worth mentioning because we're in, in on it, maybe the listeners aren't, is that it's a, it's a vertically oriented organization. Like there's a hierarchy, right? And there are many titles, but the only title that truly matters, well, there's actually two because they are analogs of one another on different shows. And there's the world title and the universal title. They are essentially both the highest titles one can have. Yeah. If you have one of those titles, you are the chosen exemplar of the company. If you're a good guy, you're the guy making all the media appearances. If you're a bad guy, you're the guy who's basically there to basically allow the next good guy to come topple you. You're a placeholder for the next figure for the WWE. Yeah. And throughout history, when it comes to those two major titles, or at times even just one major title, very few times has it been anyone who's who's not white. Like the amounts of times that's been someone from a black or brown community, you can count them on one hand. Kofi Kingston winning. I think he was the first world heavyweight champion, like the WWE champion, yeah. um, who was black, African descent. But Kofi Kingston winning that title, that, that was a big moment. And it really highlighted the fact that like it just doesn't happen too often. But no. like, you know, one thing that gets to me is like even to this day, the ways in which characters are racialized, right? Like I mentioned the thing earlier about how there's this tendency to kind of put people of similar race together and have them play caricatures. And like mm -hmm. that to me is the default setting in which the WWE approaches race. You know, you think of, I love him to death, but our truth, who's this, yeah. who's an incredibly talented and entertaining wrestler who doesn't get the chance to wrestle He's no. basically brought out once a show to shuck and jive and to play a terrible black stereotype and then like get pinned by someone and then steal the title back and run away. And it's 2021 and he's still doing that yeah. shtick, which is terrible because he himself can go like you put that man in a match. He'll do something with that match and it'll be incredible. You know, the new yeah. day to some extent, at least early phase, I felt fell into that category too, where they just play these sort of caricatures as opposed to having the opportunity to like be performers and like Absolutely. show their skill because they are also three of the most skilled people in the company, particularly Big E, who you should oh, build gosh. a company around that man. Yeah, yeah. Well, even speaking about, you know, Kofi Kingston, when he first emerged on the scene, right, he was forced to do to put on an accent, like um, a Jamaican accent, right? And he he doesn't have an accent normally, and he was supposed to, 
put on an entire shtick based on him being, you know, from from Jamaica. Well, right? he wasn't and even from he's Jamaica. Not. His he's not from Jamaica. Somalian, right? I believe, right? Like, it's, yeah, yeah. So like, that's that's another example, right? There, where they see somebody and they're like, you know what? This is the gimmick for you. It plays into a bunch of these tropes, and you know, go out there and try and uh, to use wrestling parlance, get yourself over, which which means to you know get uh, in favor with the crowd and become popular. And I think comparatively, you don't like a top performer in the company who is not a minority doesn't have to do that same sort of character work. Or if they do, you know, they can enjoy being a badass or they can like, you know, play something a little straight as opposed to being a caricature of anything, you know, and find success with it. There are always those those guys who are going to be characters and like they don't ever reach what Vince McMahon famously would call the brass ring because they just can't. Mm -hmm. But for those who do, like they're typically not being caricatures ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a very few like rare examples of that for sure. I guess maybe one uh, of those um, exceptions would be like Rusev, but he was still putting on a a gimmick himself. Right. You know, being like the evil, you know, Eastern European um, prototypical, you know, kind of like cold war, Russian strong Bulgarian brute. That was his nickname, the Bulgarian brute. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, he comes out barefooted, you know, with the, with a tank at one point, you know, some of these gimmicks, you know, they just try to play into these stereotypes and it, it goes all the way around sometimes. Yeah. Because like the normative standard is still the white American is the good guy. Right. And all of this, it's that the foreigner is bad, not necessarily black and brown people are always bad, but when they're good, it's very rarely on the merits of their own skill. It's always because mm-hmm. they can play up, being the caricature and getting over at the crowd that way with some exceptions of course the rock is the example of someone who well he also actually played that at one point right because in the 90s they had this group called the nation of domination who were a bunch of disaffected black wrestlers who basically were two decades old caricatures of malcolm x and the nation of islam using like over the top overtly racist language right and the rock was part of that crew of course, The Rock being The Rock, who has more charisma in his pinky toenail than the entire city of Ottawa. <laughs> <He's>, yeah. <laughs> he will rise above that, right? But yeah. generally speaking, like everyone's got to play that angle if you're a minority. Yeah. yeah. Barring, you know, like certain exceptions, you know, like The Rock, you know, being such a charismatic figure, like once in a generation kind of kind of talent with, with in, in whatever aspect of uh of politics or to entertainment that he's in, you know, a lot of the time that's a super limiting kind of thing, you know, like if it weren't for the rocks personality in a lot of ways, you know, who knows where he would have gone. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he, he was a very impressive wrestler too. Don't get me wrong. I think he was, he was amazing and he still wrestles to this day and looks just as good as he did when he was young. But yeah, uh, I think there's a huge, for lack of a better term, like a glass ceiling sometimes for, for a lot of these, these wrestlers from different communities that don't, fit the mold of the prototypical white American male. Sure. I want to kind of go back to the sort of link between the WWE and, and Donald Trump and, and conservatism here, because like, yeah, we, we, we've spoken sort of late phase in some ways about the connection between Donald Trump and the WWE, but that's really a relationship that's gone back about 30 years at this point. Vince McMahon and Donald Trump have been friends at least since the mid eighties. By the late eighties, they were working together on projects. You know, the WWE's Hallam Rock show every year, WrestleMania two years in a row was at Trump Plaza in New Jersey and Atlantic city Four was originally meant to be a one-off, but it was so successful. Donald Trump personally invited them back. And it's been this longstanding relationship, which is even translated onto television with Donald Trump again playing a character and showing up and beating up Vince McMahon, which became a meme he would use as president where he would superimpose CNN on Vince McMahon's head and then punch him. Contentious relationship with CNN started early. It seems. Yeah. 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 And I, I just think it's fascinating because like there's an old saying in wrestling. I remember Hulk Hogan saying it's that, you know, don't work yourself into a shoot. Right, work mm-hmm. being the storyline, shoot being real. Don't believe a storyline to the point that it translates and becomes real. Mm-hmm. And like we kind of talked about this earlier, but I wanted to dive a little more into it and the ways in sure. which, like, you know, the discourse of the WWE seems to feed into that and in sort of American populism. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it, you know, from, I think it feeds into it in a kind of peculiar way, right? It, it, it feeds into like the broad, reinforces the broader social ideas of what it means to be a quote unquote American, right? As we've been talking about, because through, you know, like a lot of these villain type figures, right? Who are, especially in the case of Daniel Bryan, he's, he's a, that environmentalist, right? Against, you know, American in a, American industry, you know, and he wants to change the way we do things, you know, sometimes just throw, showing a villain in that light can also reinforce a certain way in which we approach politics on our own. Yeah. And for the record, that's not even in the past. Like the Daniel Bryan story might've passed, yeah. but there are two storylines which do the same thing now. One would be Retribution, who is a group of disaffected yeah. wrestlers in the WWE who are deciding to take the whole system down, who are a various, very obvious analog to Antifa. Like they mm-hmm. have the iconography and they use the rhetoric and they dress like apparently members of Antifa dressed. And then Sami Zayn, right, who is a Syrian-born Muslim wrestler who is a staunch sort of social advocate for the plight of the Syrian people to the point that he has set up mobile hospitals. And they've played up this angle where, like, he is also this disaffected guy that the system's against and he's railing against the system, but is doing so as a bad guy. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, he still can't be trusted. Well, I think there's a definite underlying um, sentiment within like WWE storylines that change is bad. Mm. You know, that's the one thing I, I think uh, that we can really take away from this. It's that you know, innovation and um, trying to think outside the box, rather than you know being a part of the you know the normative structure that is you know the U.S. You know, questioning it is often a, often seen as a bad thing within WWE storylines, right? It's not it's not all the time. I, I think there there are a few examples where, you know, people like CM Punk were able to find themselves really getting some popularity, but I think that was more of a virtue of their own personality. Mm-hmm. Right? Even with the even with uh, the rock example you gave with the nation of domination. He despite being framed, you know, even that gimmick as more of, you know, like a anti system rebel bad person bad guy kind of thing he was still able to get himself over so i don't think like the wwe really gives these wrestlers um a chance vis-a-vis uh the storylines that they create to naturally you know be in a storyline that you know gives them some uh acclaim and the interesting thing is for much of this we've been talking about the sort of you know the performative aspect of the wwe but then you step into sort of it as a company as an entity as vince mcmahon an individual and you look at the politics And in terms of domestic politics, global politics as well, there's some really interesting and kind of scary things at play here as well. You know, Mm -hmm. like we we had mentioned earlier how the WWE never took a break when the pandemic hit. Like it essentially took one week off and then was back to doing live shows fairly quickly. And, you know, that's because the WWE kind of immediately labeled an essential service in Florida. But when you actually Mm -hmm. look at like the sort of genesis of that happening, like, it's wholly problematic. Yeah. So basically when the pandemic hit, everybody, you know, the NBA, all these big sports leagues were starting to, to close down, right? And then there was a bit of uh, lobbying from, from Vince McMahon to the Trump administration, as well as um, the, the governor of Florida to get the WWE uh, deemed as a quote-unquote essential service, which, you know, is a bit odd um, for for wrestling as being deemed an essential service, but ultimately after uh, a 10 day period, they were, they were actually de- able to get uh, declared as an essential service and were able to continue business operations. Yeah. Right. And only all, albeit in a modified sense, but before any sports league was able to even think about coming back to play, you know, the WWE, AKA Vince McMahon with all of his relations to, uh, politicians and politics in the United States was able to get this done, which brings into question, you know, do they have a second set of rules that they get to play by, whereas everybody else has their own? Well, the interesting thing about that 10-day period is kind of what happened in Florida during that 10-day period. Um, during that 10-day period, a pro-Trump super PAC known as America First Action Committee donated about $18.5 million to Florida. Um the chair of that super PAC is Linda McMahon, the former CEO yeah. of the WWE, the wife of Vince McMahon. And interestingly enough, I, you know, I think the day before that was announced, 
Trump was giving a press conference and he mentioned Vince McMahon by name as one of the guys who will help rebuild America and lead yeah, them into the yeah. 21st century following. Like, it's just, it's, it's mad shady. But weirdly, that is not the shadiest of politics, in my opinion, at least. Because <laughs> if we look, the WWE, you know, we mentioned, it's this massive multinational corporation. They have offices around the world and they have farm leagues, or at least the wrestling equivalent of a farm league, in many yeah. countries, China, India, uh, Japan, you know, throughout the global south, you can find these, you know, NXT hyphen whatever country. It's fascinating to me the way in which you have sort of global dynamics of the WWE, but also global dynamics to their politics, particularly where they perform. On one hand, they're this sort of American exemplar who kind of reflect American values and attempt to in, indeed claim that they reflect sort of American values and they're trying to kind of promote them abroad. But at the same time, the way in which they sort of play with very nefarious politics and embolden them is, is a problem as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, I remember one of the bigger controversies being um, them holding a show in Saudi Arabia and them choosing uh, to not have any women, female wrestlers from the women's division on it, you know, because, you know, the WWE has been long applauded for, you know, their, their embrace of the women's division in the, in, in the 2010s, right? Like one of, that's one of the most alluring divisions to watch because it's such great wrestling so uh, a ton of focus is given to it except when they go to saudi arabia they decide you know in part as an interplay with the politics there that you know women are not allowed to perform yeah women's so wrestling in the wwe is probably the biggest wheel of change that's worth mentioning throughout a lot of the wwe's history the women's division was kind of an afterthought i would say up until the 90s it was completely neglected in the 90s you saw this shift where they basically it was just highly sexualized. Everyone was like sort of a, you know, an ideal looking blonde woman who didn't really wrestle as much as they just like went out there and put on quote unquote matches. In recent years, the hardest workers in the company have been the women. They've had something to prove and they've proven it, that they have the hustle and they have the muscle to put on not just good matches, but, you know, often the best match of the night. And, yeah. you know, what they've called the women's revolution has been the biggest change in WWE like that anyone can mark in recent times uh, to the point that like, you know, that sort of person who grabbed the brass ring in most recent years was a woman, that being Becky Lynch, who became the face of the company. But yeah, that's, that's a big thing, right? Because like this Saudi, the, the Saudi Arabia stuff, I know it fascinates me because they signed this huge, I believe 10 year deal with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to basically produce shows, you know, every couple of months they come in, they'll do a big pay-per-view They'll bring in old wrestlers for it because there's always got to be yeah. a nostalgia act. The Undertaker's got to fight somebody. But, like, there's so much tied to it. So the first one, yeah, they didn't let women wrestle at all. Eventually, they did let women wrestle, but they were yeah. all covered and basically wearing bags. But, like, yeah. amazing. I think it was the second or the third event happened, like, a month after Jamal Khashoggi died. And there's this whole thing yeah. where a lot of the wrestlers said, hey, we have a problem with going to this show. And the WWE basically said, well, like, if you, you have no say in this, like, you're going to come and do this show, it doesn't matter. And only two people were allowed to not go on principle, one being John Cena, because John Cena is John Cena. He's now yeah. beyond the WWE, and if he shows up there, it's doing them a favor. And the other was Daniel Bryan, who was yeah. summarily punished on television, made to look like a fool. But, like, as much as... Like the thing that, that shocked me with all this is that, you know, the WWE claims to be sort of this exemplar of American values, you know, which would assume an egalitarianism, human rights, things like that, but then had no problems pandering to an authoritarian government, which murdered a journalist for speaking out against them. The show must go on, right? I think one of the interesting things to think about is that, you know, we think a lot of uh, the WWE as, you know, this entity, but we don't really necessarily also think that it's also a business sometimes too, right? And sometimes, you know, the necessities of being like a publicly traded company too uh, demands, you know, that the WWE try and, you know, make as much money <laughs> as it can. And when Saudi Arabia is handing them, you know, a ton of money to go and perform there, you know, sometimes a lot of uh, the social issues that, you know, are important to people um, get, you know, thrown under the wayside you know, in, in favor of, you know, being accountable to your shareholders, you know, and uh, I think with uh, the examples that you brought up of people not going there on principle, I think Sami Zayn was also one of them too, you know, being um, 
doing so much work in Syria and, and being such a you know noble activist in the way he is, it, it put a lot of questions back into the into the discussion about you know the ethics of the WWE and whether you know people want to support a product that is really not giving its wrestlers you know uh, a proper say in where they perform and advocating for social issues. It's interesting because like. In this podcast, we've talked both about sort of the storylines element, the fictional element of it, and also the sort of real economic, political elements of the WWE. And like it almost comes back full circle to what wrestling is to me, because wrestling is this really interesting form of entertainment. You know, during the pandemic, the one thing I've been doing is catching up on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. It's it's, oh, cool. it's kind of how I end my evenings. I'll watch a couple of episodes. <laughs> and they recently did an episode where, well, not recently, I guess it was a few years ago at this point, but Anthony Bourdain actually was talking with Adam Cole, uh, who is currently a WWE wrestler for the NXT brand. And they were talking about wrestling. And Cole said this really interesting quote, which stuck to me. And it's that you'll you'll never understand wrestling until you get the fact that it has more in common with Game of Thrones than it does the UFC. Right. Wrestling is a particularly interesting form of entertainment because it actively seeks to blur the lines between sport and theatricality in a way that no other either entertainment form or a form of sport does. And I wonder if this ambiguous line between reality and fiction has political significance. I don't know. What do you think? I think it absolutely has a ton of political uh, significance. Um, one of the things I think that we need to think about is, you know, the blending of theatricality and reality is that, you know, a lot of the, we brought up a bunch of like the stereotypes that we've talked about earlier. I think those stereotypes reinforce the way we think and the way we think affects how we engage in politics. Right. So WWE has such a huge audience, right. Across the globe, right. That it, that it's influence and the way it portrays certain, whether it be um, cultures, um, political issues, social issues, the way it actually responds to it through its storylines can all, can reinforce some of the biases we have. In addition, I think, you know, the way that the WWE itself, you know, as a blending of reality and uh, fiction, the way it responds to like important events that have occurred across the globe also matters too. You know, do we know, is WWE, you know, playing up like the assassination of bin Laden just to get, earn, you know, a little bit more uh, favor with the shareholders, who knows, right? So I think we definitely need to think of it as a blurring of, of reality and fiction, but also see that, you know, there are some times in the storylines that we see that, you know, real events do show shine through. It's kind of incumbent on us to try and, you know, moderate uh, how this occurs and, you know, try and make our own decisions on the matter. Yeah, that's, that's always something that's stuck out with me, because like, you, you think about the environment in which people are socialized into, right, and how they develop political opinions and such, and so much of it is drawn from our entertainment. But there's usually a line, right, that this mm -hmm. is fiction. Maybe it draws on real life in terms of inspiration, like, you know, Law & Order does that a lot. But, like, there's always an understanding that these are actors playing a role that's not real, and uh, it's, it's, you know, everything's grandiose and such. But with wrestling, you're very much led to believe that they're not necessarily actors like i think the veil is being lifted more and more and more as time goes on but like there's still that element of realism to it you know it's yeah. it's meant to be to be the fiscal it's meant to communicate that like this person's utterly destroying this other person and it's meant to feel like it's actually happening as opposed yeah. to being sensationalist and when you put politics into that, as they often do, whether it's john cena coming out and talking about bin laden to get a cheap pop or someone drawing on the iconography of Black Lives Matter and Antifa to try and make people of that social movement look evil, you know, yeah, it, it socializes the viewer into believing that subject, Absolutely. especially now since the WWE, it's, it's about so much more than just the wrestling show every week, right? It's social mm -hmm. media, it's, you know, cameo appearances, it's appearances on television shows, it's movies, right? They have, they have a studio that puts out bad, bad films and if people are socialized within a particular biased view of politics from all angles from this one organization which kind of purports a sense of realism and that what they do is true yeah it, like the effects on well, yeah on socialization well, are massive yeah yeah two two things right like one of their biggest audiences are young children right like 
the they a lot of the content that they do tailors a lot to a younger audience. Some of it, a lot of it, it also appeals to like the the uh, the prime the golden demographic that they say eighteen to thirty five or whatever it is. But a lot of their audiences involves a lot of young children, right? So you have to wonder about the content they're that they're consuming, right, on a, on a weekly basis and how that's impacting how they see the world. But also, uh, too, a lot of the time in the old WWE, there wasn't that clear line between reality and fiction as it's starting to come now. A lot of people, when they would watch, you know, the early years of wrestling in like the 70s and 80s, thought this was the real the real thing, right? So when these massive characters, larger than life, you know, villains, you know, from Kamal the Butcher and stuff, a lot of people like that who are portraying these tropes, they thought they were, you know, in a large sense, thought they were real people. Because they didn't understand at the time that this was just a work, a work of fiction, or as they say, a work, right? So, you know, I think that could have a huge influence on the generation uh, that uh, was watching this stuff and actually thought, oh, well, I guess I guess this is real, you know? Everybody's working themselves into a shoot, man. Fair enough, right? So, yeah, I think, I, I, I think um, we definitely have to take into account the normative effects of the, the content that people are watching and seeing how it translates to maybe their political opinions maybe that's a future study i have no idea but that's uh yeah that's an interesting topic for sure good area of future research man maybe <laughs> but this has been a great maybe. chat i've really loved doing this i've been wanting to do this for some time and i'm glad it's happened and it's great but to kind of end off i'm interested in your research you know tell us a bit about yeah. what you're doing you are now a phd student at the program you're previously an ma student which is when we became friends tell us about yeah, your work yeah. yeah so the one of the main drivers that drove me to uh to pursue a phd here is studying the political effects of personalization on social media platforms so one of the things that i found very interesting is analyzing the kind of content we see on social media and how social media as a medium because it's a medium between us and others the medium between us and information, how content personalization on social media can reinforce our biases about certain topics, right? So what actors are we exposed to? What news sources do we see? I think at least the past year with COVID uh, has really made me want to study this even more, right? Does social media through content personalization reinforce our biases and the type of individuals that we interact with? Or does social media actually expose us to new information? Right. Um, I think that's the main thing that's driving my research right now. And that's ever relevant stuff. I mean, it's kind of my wheelhouse, too. So there will definitely always be an appetite for that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, I, I've always been interested in the, the concept of digital echo chambers. You know, how can we break through these digital echo chambers and actually, you know, maybe come together and discuss topics, you know, without it always devolving into <laughs> huge threads of arguments. I, I, I hope to maybe make a contribution there, um, but such that this topic is so massive and so important for our time. I think uh, it's uh, incumbent on, uh, on you know people like us to try and at least interrogate these issues and maybe pose a couple solutions. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear more about it. Anyways, man, yeah, thank you. thanks so much for joining us this week. It was a great talk and let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.